Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Mmm, sounds great. Well, I am indeed the one and only Reverend Dr. Stephen Carl Brower, except a couple of those words I don't know if I would use. Never really been sure what reverend means. Um, something about being revered, I suppose. Uh, so I don't know if I should accept that one. Doctor is not accurate. I do not have a doctorate. I do have a master's degree in French horn performance, which will certainly suit me well up here right now. Uh, so you may have heard my name before. You may have heard uh, tell of this Carl person who uh, likes uh, Rubik's Cubes and puzzles and nerdy board games and plays French horn and these kinds of things. And those are indeed me. You may have heard uh, Zach and or Jeff make jokes at my expense over those things. And, and now you see my face and say, oh, it's that guy. Oh, he's up there now. I wonder if today he'll get them back. Well, we will see. But here's what I would like to do. I'd like to read our passage once more, uh, and then pray, and then we will jump in together. So we are in the book of Romans, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's ju righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we say thank you. Thank you for being our God, for allowing us to be your people, for uh, the opportunity that we have to gather in this place, to worship your name, to think about you and your word, uh, that we uh, enjoy uh, the freedom of being able to do that without fear of persecution. And so we rejoice in that. We celebrate that we can gather openly in public this way. Lord, we ask for you to be near to us as we uh, sit under the teaching of your word. Lord, I pray for each of us in this room. We all come in here with different difficulties, Lord. We come in here with frustrations, with fears, with anxieties, uh, Lord, with conflict in our lives, whether that's just a tough, hard work at week, uh, whether that's bad news about a loved one, whether that's uh, strife with a spouse or with a child or a friend. Each of us has difficulties that we've come in here with. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you will Grant us the grace and the peace that we need to set those things down, even just for a few moments, that we might consider you rightly, that we might understand you better, which would cause us to love you more, which would lead us to worship you more correctly. And so we ask for all of these things, knowing that you delight to give good gifts to your children. And so we say thank you for the good gift of Christ, who has made a way for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we kind of jump into the text, I do want to start off by sharing a quick story with you. Uh, this story takes place uh, about 17 years ago or so, um, uh, when my wife was about six, seven months pregnant with our first child, Taylor, who is now a 16-year-old young man. So uh, my wife and I are living in this little two-bedroom kind of loft apartment where you've got the two bedrooms upstairs, you've got the living room, kitchen thing downstairs, and we're excited. We're eager. We can't wait to be parents. We're 
eagerly anticipating the coming of this child. And so we're decorating this room that he's going to be in. I'm putting together a crib and I'm building a bookshelf and we're putting decorations on the walls. And one of the things that we realize is one of the things that might be really helpful uh, for us, for mom in particular, is if we could put a dimmer switch uh, on the wall to kind of dim the light so she, she can go in there and feed him or change him, whatever needs to happen in the middle of the night uh, without turning the light all the way up. I'm thinking, man, that would be a super big win if I can make this happen. I think it'll only be like eight bucks, and I'm super smart. So I drive on down to Home Depot, I spend my eight bucks and get my dimmer switch, and I come home, and I grab a pair of pliers and a screwdriver, and I head upstairs with my wife right behind me. And I get to the switch, and I start to unscrew the first screw that holds the little wall plate on, and my sweet wife, who is so gracious and kind and patient, she says, hey, um, uh, do you want me to just run downstairs and just go ahead and just turn that uh, breaker off for you? The answer to that question should be, of course, yes. Yes, please, dear. That would be an amazing gift to me. That's not what I say. I say, no, I'm good. I'm good. Because, because I understand how electricity works. Uh, and I think that whole turning off the breaker thing is for other people. It's for other people that don't really get it. The electricity flows in this wire and out that wire, and as long as I don't touch them both at the same time, I'm good. So I'd be like, I don't have anything to worry about. Fine. My wife is very gracious, and she sits down. She's seven months pregnant, and she wants to rest, but she does not stop thinking about this. Uh, in a conversation I had with her kind of preparing to share this story with you, uh, I learned uh, 17 years later that one of the things she was thinking about is, what object in this room could I use to kind of pry my husband off of these wires <laughs> once he begins to get electrocuted, which is definitely going to happen. Uh, and also, how near is a telephone that I can call 911 so, so he can get the emergency care that he will definitely need? And so I continue the task, and I unscrew both the screws. I take the wall plate off. I pull the switch out. I undo one wire. I undo the other wire. The old switch is out. Boom. This job's halfway done, folks. No big deal. See? Don't need to turn off any breakers. <laughs> Throw that thing over there. Come over here and get my new switch put it in the thing, and I start to put the first wire on, I start to screw it in, and I do the very thing that you are not supposed to do, which is touch both of the wires at the same time. And it shocks me real bad, and it hurts. And I, I, I jerk my hand off, my, the screwdriver flies to the ground, and I'm just, man, oh, ah, that didn't feel good. I look over at my wife, and she does not say, I told you. She does not say, I offered to turn the breaker off. She doesn't say anything of the kind. She says, would you like me to, to go ahead and run downstairs and turn that breaker off for you? The answer to that question should have been, yes, yes, dear. You were right in the first place. Thank you for offering. That is a gracious and kind offer. In fact, maybe I should run downstairs and turn it off. You're pregnant. Let me run up and down the stairs and take care of that, right? But that's not what I say. What I say is, I'm good. I'm good. Now, the reason I say I'm good the second time is two reasons. One, the same as the first reason, which was, I'm pretty smart, I understand how electricity works, and it'll be fine. I just need to not touch both wires. The second reason is, I think that now the odds are in my favor. I've already been shocked once. The likelihood that I'm going to get shocked a second time is now super low. So why would we waste time going up and down the stairs? Let me just finish this. And so I begin to go back to work, and this time, like 15 seconds later, I hit both of those things with a screwdriver again, and this time it really gets me. And this pain radiates up my arm. 
and it's really uncomfortable. And I just begin to flex my arm, and just it's just so painful. And all of my muscles have contracted, and they're freaking out. And I'm not sure what to do. And I look at my wife, who says nothing. She's already said something to me twice. She knows where I stand. All right? And, and so I, in silence, walk downstairs, turn off the breaker, come back upstairs, and finish the job without incident. Now, the reason I share this story is because I knew the way electricity works. I know why people say, turn off the breaker. There's a good reason for it. There's a good reason that breakers exist. And that is to keep us alive, right? I also know what the consequences will be if I don't turn off that breaker. I know what's going to happen. I'll shock myself. There's enough current, there's enough amperage running through there to genuinely kill me. And I know that that's true, and yet, I think somehow I'm exempt. I think somehow it doesn't count for me. And I share this story with you because that's what Paul is going to be addressing. He's going to be addressing and speaking to a group of people who think that even though they understand the law, that even though they understand what the consequences are, that somehow, some way, they're exempt. So let's look at the text. We, uh, we've been in chapter 1, right? We just wrapped up chapter 1 last week. Uh, and just a quick recap there. We kind of talked through the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. Jeff taught on this last week. So you've got this group of people that Paul is speaking to. He's written this letter to the church in Rome, and he's, a, he's speaking directly to the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. And these are, this is a group of people that are outside of the covenant. They're not part of God's covenant people. They do not possess the law that's been given, and they're in sin. But the Scriptures also say that they are without excuse because everything they need to know about God has been made plain to them. It's kind of woven into the fabric of creation. And so Paul's focus, as we talked about last week, is on idolatry. This idea that you have exchanged the creation for creator. You said, no thanks, God. I don't want you. I want your stuff. And so Paul picks up here in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So the first thing I want to look at here is the first word of this, of this uh, verse is therefore. Therefore refers back to something, right? So it's like I tell you something and therefore this other thing. It would be like me saying to you, uh, electrical wires in your home carry lots of current and they can kill you. Therefore, you should turn off the breaker before you change the switch, right? So that's what the word therefore gets used for. And what most scholars agree is that this therefore is referring back to the middle of chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And so what Paul is saying is, in light of that, therefore you have no excuse, O man, for all this judging that you're doing. And so we have to ask ourselves, who is O man? Who is Paul talking to when he says O man? First thing we need to understand is that he's setting up what's called a diatribe argument, which means uh, I am going to kind of create an imaginary opponent against whom I'm going to debate, and they hold the positions of a group of people that I want to understand. It's a teaching method, right? So the idea is that the opponent isn't really there, but you already know their position, you already understand their arguments, and you pretend like you're debating them. This is really like any conversation that you might have with Zach Lee except there'll be a lot less references to Navy SEALs and magic tricks. But the answer to the question, who is O man, is the Jews. He's speaking directly to the Jews here. And we'll see as we get through the text why that is. We'll see the evidences for this, even though he does not directly name them in this text. 
but he's primarily speaking to Jews. But he's talking to anyone who's judging uh, in the ways that he's going to talk about. So let's move on to what is it that he's condemning? What is Paul speaking against here? What is Paul condemning? And if we look at the first half of this verse, if we look at the first sentence of this verse, it appears that Paul is condemning judging. He's, it seems like he's saying, don't judge. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. But we have to finish the verse and understand what he's talking about. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so it's not judgment that Paul is speaking about. It's not judgment that he's condemning. It's hypocrisy. It is doing the same things while looking down your nose in superiority at someone else and judging them. So judgment is the way by which the Jews' hypocrisy is made known. He speaks about their judgment because it is in their judgment that they are revealing their hypocrisy. This is like a, a man who has lost a lot of his hair. I can speak with great authority on this subject. And some men do not like it when they lose their hair. Others embrace it and they're fine. Some really don't like it. And some that don't like it will grow all the hair out on this side and then comb it over, right? Now, a lot of comb-overs are pretty tacky, and you can spot them. But it is possible to do a comb-over in such a way that it's really believable. You put enough product in that thing, and you really work it and get the mousse going. Do they still make mousse? Let's, say, let's just pretend like you're using mousse. And you can get your hair styled in such a way that it really looks like you still have a full head of hair. But when you walk out into a windy street, the thing's going to pop open like a trap door. It's just going <laughs> to... Right? And everybody's going to know. It is the wind that has revealed the comb over in spite of your excellent grooming techniques. All right? And in the same way here, it is the judgment that these people are walking in that is revealing their hypocrisy. And this is one of the reasons that we can kind of conclude that it is indeed the Jews that Paul's speaking to is because who is it? Who is it that would be standing in judgment over Gentiles? Who would be looking down their nose at Gentiles and saying, yeah, get your act together? Jews. They're the ones that possess the law. They're the ones that think they're better off because of their ethnicity. And so just quickly, I want to talk about the Jew and Gentile thing because I don't want us to get off on a tangent that would have us thinking that somehow Paul's being racist, that he's, he's singling out Jews simply because they're Jews. But if you think about it in terms of uh, modern America, we kind of think in terms of two races. We think of black and white. I recognize that there are far more races that exist in America, but generally we, we think of this dichotomy, black and white. And in the Bible, the same thing exists. You have two races. There's Jew and Gentile. You have Jews that are the descendants of Abraham, those that belong to the 12 tribes of Israel, those who have been given the Mosaic law. They are God's covenant people. And Gentiles, who are everybody else, anybody who's not a Jew. And so Paul is not condemning the Jews because of their race. He's condemning them because they are using their race to say, this doesn't apply to me. I don't need to worry about this sin. I'm exempt. In the same way that I thought that I was exempt from the laws of physics regarding electricity. This idea that the Jews are using their ethnicity as an excuse or a reason to disobey. So in chapter 1, we saw Paul condemning the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. And you can kind of imagine the Jews standing next to Paul with their arms folded as he condemns them saying, yeah, preach, brother. You tell them what's up. They need to get with it. They need to obey the law. They need to do this stuff right. Mm-hmm. 
right? This is kind of like a couple of kids at home. You've got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and the nine-year-old keeps taking his shoes and socks off and just leaving them all over the, the living room. And you tell him over and over and over, will you please put your shoes and socks away? And finally, you say, come here, come here, Johnny, listen to me. It's going to go really, really poorly for you if you cannot get your act together and put your shoes and socks where they go. Is that clear? Am I, do I need to explain it any more clearly to you? Your shoes and socks don't go here. Meanwhile, the 12-year-old is inching ever closer to the parent and saying, mm-hmm, get your shoes and socks, Johnny. You're in trouble. And the parent sees this 12-year-old and says, uh, aren't, aren't those your shoes? Aren't those your socks? Pick those up. It's this idea that you're doing the same things and yet condemning someone else. You think somehow you're exempt. It's like, uh, it's like King David, who looks down on this rooftop in this kind of peeping Tom moment and finds this woman that he finds attractive and decides he wants her for himself. And he takes her for himself. And then he makes arrangements to have her husband killed in battle. And later on, the prophet Nathan shows up and says, King, I want to tell you a story. It's about this poor man who had one sheep and it was the only thing he had. And there was a rich man who had a ton of sheep. And the rich man had a guest, and he wanted to serve his guest a good dinner. And so he took the one sheep from the poor man and slaughtered it and gave it to him. What do you think about that, David? And David says, no, that is not okay. We need to get this man. He deserves to die. That cannot stand in my kingdom. I want to know who it is. That will never be okay. And Nathan says, you are the man. You're doing this thing that I've described by taking this woman for yourself. That's what's happening. Paul is saying, you're standing in judgment over another, and in your judgment, it reveals your hypocrisy. Now, a quick word on judgment. Even though this isn't really Paul's focus, he's not focusing in on judgment. He's focusing in on the hypocrisy. But this idea of judgment comes up a lot in our culture, and I think it's worth taking just a moment to talk about it. So our culture is going to say to us, don't judge. Judgment's bad. Don't judge me, bro, is the battle cry of our culture. And they'll look at us. They'll look at the Christian and say, you especially, don't judge me. Your God tells you not to. Your Bible tells you not to. And let me show you where. And they'll use this passage here in Romans 2 to say, see, he says don't judge. They'll point to Christ speaking in Matthew 7, saying he says not to judge. Even in the, in the, in the Scriptures as a whole, we find that that's not the case, that we are indeed called to be people that judge it's the hypocrisy that's the issue. If we look in Galatians 2, we see Paul addressing Peter and saying, Peter, you're out of step with the gospel. You refuse to eat with these Gentiles. And he publicly rebukes him, which requires that Paul is making a judgment of Peter's behavior. In Matthew 18, when we see how the, the church discipline process is supposed to play out, it begins with a loving one-on-one -on -one conversation where I come to you and I say, brother, I think you're in sin. I want to invite you to repentance which requires me to have made a judgment about your behavior. The Scriptures are clear that we ought to judge. And this idea of Christ Himself saying, do not judge, I want us to look at it. Now, we're not going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. But in Matthew 7, uh, verse 1, Christ says, He's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and He says, judge not that you be not judged. Same thing like we looked at here in, in the second chapter of Romans. This first verse seems to say, don't judge. But we've got to keep reading. He says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, it, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus is making the same point. Don't be a hypocrite in your judgment. Don't walk in unrepentant sin while trying to judge someone else. And where Paul is saying you're doing the very same things, Christ here is saying you're doing worse things. He's comparing a log to a speck. This would be like you or I driving down the highway in the left lane doing 105 miles an hour, just cruising, my little Honda Civic just getting that done. And then I see somebody exiting the highway, and they don't use their blinker. And I just get all riled up. Oh, I can't believe this guy didn't use his blinker. Oh, does cruise control work this fast? So judging is not the issue. Judging is not the issue for Paul in Romans. It's also not the issue for Jesus in Matthew. It's the hypocrisy that is revealed through the judgment. So Paul's saying to the Jews, you're just like these Gentiles that I've described in chapter 1. I spent all this time talking to the Gentiles, explaining their idolatry, and you sit in judgment over them, and you're a hypocrite. Because you have made an idol. You are an idolater. You've made an idol out of your ethnicity. You've made an idol out of this idea that you're in covenant with God. You've made an idol out of this idea that you possess God's law. He's frustrated with the Jews because the nation of Israel has not been what it was supposed to be. And I'm going to steal an illustration from Zach that he's used before, but I think it's a good one. That if the whole world were an ocean, and if all these Gentile nations were boats lost at sea, the nation of Israel, the Jews, were meant to be the Coast Guard who would go out and rescue and redeem them and bring them home. But when they go out, they get lost at sea too. And what we're seeing here in this passage, what Paul's addressing is this idea, they go out to sea, they get lost at sea, and while they're out there, they have the audacity to still pick up the radio and give all the other boats a hard time for being lost. Why are you lost at sea? And Paul's saying, you're lost at sea. Put the radio down. You need to deal with your own sin before you try to deal with someone else's. But Paul, we've got this sweet boat. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, again, this verse begins with an important word. It begins with the word we. And so Paul's not saying you, you, you anymore. He switched and said, now we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. And why would he say we? Paul is a Jew. He's talking to Jews. He says, you guys, we know this. Why do we know this? Because we have the law. God has given to us the law, and we know that his judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things, who practice this idolatry. He speaks of the judgment of God. This is in contrast to the hypocritical judgment that we're seeing with the Jews, that we see with all of us. God's judgment is perfect. God's judgment is just. And what he says is God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. It is within God's right to pour out his judgment upon those who would practice these things. And so Paul's acknowledging that he and the ones that he's addressing are in agreement. We we agree. We agree that God's judgment is rightly poured out. What they don't agree on is who does that apply to. The Jews think the Gentiles absolutely deserve God's wrath, but they think of themselves as being somehow free from that charge. But Paul's saying, no, this is for all. No one is exempt. Everyone is in need of a Savior. Everyone has missed the mark. Everyone has fallen short. 
Verse number three. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, Paul has an opportunity here to kind of more specifically name his opponent. He has an opportunity to say, do you suppose, O hypocritical Jews, that you will escape the judgment of God? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't call them Jews. He doesn't call them hypocritical. What he does is he describes them in the exact same way that he described them before. You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself. Paul is saying, I'm not going to name you Jews right now because that's not the point. The point isn't your Jewishness. The point isn't your ethnicity. The point is your hypocrisy. The point is you're doing the same things while trying to judge others. He's highlighting the hypocrisy. He's increasing the severity of the charge as he moves toward his point. And so the question that he's asking in this, vo- in this verse, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul, Paul is expecting yes is the answer. You do suppose that. You do think that God's kindness and forbearance and patience that we're going to see in the next verse were given to you because of who you are or what you have. That somehow you and your merit have earned for you escape from the consequences of your sin. And Paul's saying that's not the way it works. It's like a Christian who comes to faith and then says, I don't have to worry about sin anymore. And there's a sense in which there's an element of truth there because for the Christian, for those who have been bought and paid for by Christ, that is true that our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for. That is indeed true. But the idea that I no longer need to deal with sin, I no longer need to root it out in my heart, that I don't need to walk in repentance, that I don't need to make war against my sin and put it to death, Those things are false. And Paul is saying to them, this is what you're doing. You're saying because of who you are, because of your own merit, that you're exempt. This would be like Jeff Ashley putting on a backpack filled with water and going into Yellowstone Park, going into a cave, finding a grizzly bear, and kicking it in the face. Now, I think we all know how that's going to end. Jeff might think, well, you know, I've been gifted. I'm a pretty spry young man. I have a lot of athleticism. I can run pretty fast. And not only that, I know bears pretty well. I think about them a lot. I talk about them a lot. I might get out of this. But we know how that's going to go. That bear is going to feel like he took a trip to Subway. He's going to eat fresh. (laughs) And so Paul is pointing out hypocrisy that is revealed in judgment. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so Paul speaks about this kindness and forbearance and patience as being riches, the riches of God, these lavish gifts that are poured out upon his people, which is true. They are indeed lavish gifts. When I think of riches, I always think of Scrooge McDuck diving into the big giant pile of gold coins doing the backstroke through the coins, right? And in some way, that is kind of true about how God's lavish gifts are. They just envelop you. They're amazing. It's it's incredible. But on the other hand, if you try to dive into coins, you're going to smash your face. I don't know if you know how that works. A pile of coins is like concrete. It's going to smash you up. And I have a problem with the the physics involved in in that illustration. And I realize that we're talking about talking ducks that are wearing clothes. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I just can't help but talk about Scrooge McDuck. Anyway, moving on. 
Paul is pointing out to the Jews something that they already know. You already know about God's kindness. You already know about his patience. You already know about his forbearance. Forbearance being this willingness to kind of postpone a rightful claim. That's what forbearance is. It's this idea that God has a rightful claim to pour out his wrath upon you for your sin. But he postpones it. He withholds it. Because he's good. So he's saying to them, you know these things. I'm telling you these things that you know. What you don't know is what they're meant for. They're not meant for you to revel in and say, look how awesome I am. Let me judge others. They're meant to lead you to repentance. So they're still presuming on the covenant. They think that because they're part of God's covenant people that they don't have any business to do with their sin. And the second half of this verse is huge. This is what Paul's driving toward, this idea that the thing the Jews are misunderstanding is that they don't know that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. And this can easily be where we misunderstand. We may misunderstand what God's kindness and grace and patience to us is meant for. It's meant to lead us to repentance. The kindness of God that we as Christians experience is the freedom from the condemnation for sin. We no longer bear the burden and the knowledge of the knowledge that God's wrath is coming for our sin because it's already been poured out on Christ. And that beautiful reality does not give us license to sin more. It does not give us permission to ignore our sin and fail to repent. It frees us, though, from the power of sin. Sin no longer has a hold on us. It is no longer a hold on the Christian like it did before they came to faith. So in all of these cases, both for the Jew, who's part of the old covenant, as well as for the Christian, who's part of the new, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. This is what God wants from his people. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so Paul talks about a heart and he uses two words to describe it, hard and impenitent. A hard heart. We see this in the Old Testament when we look at Pharaoh as he's dealing with Moses and the idea of, of letting the people go. His, hard, his heart is hardened. And the Scriptures say that God hardens his heart, and the Scriptures say that he hardens his heart. In Ezekiel, the idea of a heart of stone being exchanged for a heart of flesh is introduced. This idea of a hard heart is one that rejects and does not receive the good things of God. It rejects the truth of God. And for us to come to faith, to be a part of God's family, means that that hard heart has to be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh that is receptive to what God is giving us in Christ. The word impenitent uh, just means unrepentant. He's saying you have a hard heart that does not receive what God wants to give you, and you don't repent. You're demonstrating a lack of faith is what he's saying. And because of that, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Storing up. Right? This usually refers to something good in the Scriptures. Oftentimes we'll see it referred to storing up grain or storing up wisdom or storing up riches, or storing up God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. In our modern culture today, we think of storing up, we often might think of hoarders. Have you seen this show? This awful television show about where it highlights these people who have this kind of obsessive, compulsive desire to keep things, and they fill their houses. They just keep bringing more and more and more and more stuff. They, they fill their house from floor to ceiling with all manner of just completely worthless things. Newspapers, stuffed animals, junk mail, food containers, cats. 
man, what are cats for? (laughs) But there is a story from this show in 2014, a woman in Connecticut who had such a problem with this hoarding, she filled her house up, completely filled it up. It was full of junk, and she began to need to store stuff in the basement because the house was full. And as she was making one of these trips down to the basement to add more stuff to her pile, the weight of everything above collapsed the floor on top of her. And she suffocated and died. And what she thought she was doing was storing up something good. She thought she was doing something good. She thought that what was happening was a good thing, but what she was storing up was the very thing that was going to condemn her, the very thing that was going to crush her and kill her. This is what Paul is saying. You're storing up wrath for yourself. When you do not receive what God gives, when you reject His grace and kindness to you, when you do not do what He wants you to do as a result of that kindness, when you fail to repent, you're storing up wrath. And that will be given out to you on the day of wrath. This day of wrath is just a reference to God's final judgment. When Christ returns to make all things new and He judges the living and the dead, this is the day that Paul's speaking of, when Christ returns. So Paul does indeed have a strong word for hypocrisy in this message. But there's a bigger point that he's making that we'll, that we'll move toward when we get into like chapter 3. But the point of this text today is that Paul wants to show that the Gentiles in chapter 1, who are without the law, outside the covenant, they are not part of God's people, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And likewise, the Jews, who do have the law, who are a part of the covenant, who are God's chosen people, they know what God expects, and yet they do the same things. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They walk in idolatry. No one is exempt. This is Paul's point. Neither are we exempt. When we read chapter 1, we should examine our hearts and see where have we exchanged the creation for the Creator? Where have we said, no thanks God, I don't want you, I'll take your stuff. When we read chapter 2, we should also examine our hearts and say, where have we presumed upon the goodness of God? Where do we walk in hypocrisy that would have us judging others? And this isn't either or. This isn't... Uh, I'm like the Gentiles, or I'm like the Jews, but rather, I'm like both of them. I have hypocrisy in my heart. I have judgment in my heart for those that that is hypocritical. I have idolatry in my heart. This is a lot like the prodigal son, the story of the son who takes his riches and goes and spends them on a lavish lifestyle and enjoys the passions of the flesh and then runs out of money and comes home and receives grace and forgiveness from the father. And you have this older brother who never left, who followed his father's instructions, who was faithful, and he's mad that the younger brother is getting grace. And we might identify more with one brother or the other, but it isn't either or, it's both and. Where do I want God's stuff and run away just to have fun? Where do I find my righteousness in my actions or my identity or my ethnicity or whatever? And for us, this usually plays out through the action of comparison. We'll compare ourselves to others in order to make assessments about ourselves rather than comparing ourselves to Christ and recognizing that if we are in Him, His identity is what we have. But we won't accept that. We're not content with Christ's identity, which is perfect. We instead try to create perfection for ourselves through comparison. So I might look at another couple's marriage 
And I'll say, man, that marriage is on fire. That guy doesn't treat his wife very well. I must be kind of awesome. But I'm not. I'm not faithful to wash my wife in the water of the Word. I'm not faithful to do what the Scriptures call me to do as a husband every single day. There are plenty of places for me to repent. I might look at some other kids that can't seem to obey their parents and look down my nose at them and say, man, they need to get their act together. I am super parent. But that's false. No, I'm not. I raise my voice to my children in anger. I have sinned against my kids and against my wife. I might think that because I'm here at church every single Sunday that I'm somehow better than the guy that can only get here once a month. Not knowing his circumstance, not knowing his situation, I will judge him, even though I'm hypocritically doing the same thing because I'm only really paying attention and only really engaging in worship once a month. I'm just here the other times because I want people to see that I'm here. I might think that my physical appearance has some sort of superiority to it. I might dress nicer than somebody else. It's not true for me, but it might be true for you. I don't know if I know how to dress nice. But I might say my physical appearance is important, and because I've chosen to make myself look good, I'm better than this guy that can't even brush his hair. Man, at least he's got hair. Am I right? I might judge someone else because of their worship. I might think that the very best way to honor the Lord is to stand stoically and still and to sing the song. And I might judge someone who raises their hand and worships with tears. It's not as though one is better than the other. But I might judge in a hypocritical manner because I don't worship the Lord with my heart. I worship Him with some sort of appearance. I might think that because I know the Bible real well, because my theology is strong, because I am fast on my feet, I can articulate what I believe faster than you. That makes me better than you. That makes me smarter than you. It makes me more sanctified than you. It's like watching Jerry Springer. You ever watching the show? This show's still on. It's probably not even on anymore. It's a show where this guy brought on these families whose relationships were in a train wreck. Brought on a woman with three guys, and they're trying to figure out who's the father of the baby, these kinds of things. And that show had such ridiculous ratings because everybody watched it. And they didn't watch it because it was good. They watched it because it made them feel good. At least I'm not as bad as them. And this is how this plays out for us. Now, whether or not your particular issue was on my little list that I just gave or not, the truth is that these issues are universal. All of us does this. We all fall short. I do this. You do this. The question is, do you know where? Where does your heart fail to obey? Where does your heart compare and then judge others that you perceive to be less than you? What hypocrisy does that reveal in you? So when we find these places in our hearts, when we find idolatry, when we see hypocrisy, the call on our lives as believers is to repent. And that's it. I don't have to make up for it. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to clean myself up for it. The call on my life is repentance. Because everything else that needs to be done has been done in Christ. We don't earn God's favor through obedient behavior. We walk as faithfully as we can in obedient behavior because we already have His favor in Christ. 
our identity if we trust in the Lord, if we have been redeemed and saved, if the Spirit of God has illuminated the Word of God to your heart that you know and trust in Christ, then you have no work to do to earn God's favor. Christ did all that work. And that's good news. We all, in Christ, have a seat at the table. So whether I have hypocrisy, whether I'm judging others through that revealing that hypocrisy, whether I am an idolater, and I am, I am all those things, I have hope. I have hope in Christ who has come and made a way to pay for that. So I'm going to pray as those who are doing communion will come forward. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you give good gifts. You give lavish gifts. You give your riches to us. And you've done that most especially in the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ. And those of us who have put our hope in him, who have found the good gift of Jesus because you've chosen to give it to us, We get to sit at the table. When your son returns to make all things new and we sit at that banquet table at the wedding supper of the Lamb, we will get to rejoice and celebrate all that you've done and all that Christ has done in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished to pay for our sin. What a gift that is. So as we read this text this morning, Lord, we might be convicted. Lord, I pray that we would not forget that there is hope in Christ. That because of His life and His death, His resurrection, that we don't have to make up for it. We don't have to pay for it. We just turn from it, knowing that it's been paid for already. And so we bless Your name that You indeed are a good God who does give good gifts to His children. Pray that You'll be with us. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.